0: This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station.
1: Buy the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Buy the Book. I'm Sharmila Ganesan. As always, with me, my fellow traveler in literature, Lee Chui Lin. Hello. Today, we have with us a guest. Probably a fairly well-known writer, particularly within the Malaysian circles. We have Deepika Mukherjee, whose previous books include Shambhala Junction, Rules of Desire, Dialects of Distant Harbours. She writes both fiction, poetry, nonfiction. But her most recent collection of essays is called Writer's Postcards and is a loose collection of travel writing, uh, but also sort of goes beyond that notion a little bit. Deepika, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. And I'm just delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation. (laughs) So,
1: as I said, you've done fiction and poetry in the past. What made you want to write this collection of what can loosely be described as travel essays?
2: I think I have been traveling ever since I was six months old. I I was born to a diplomat family. And so for me, it has been, you know, very, very normal. But I started to realize about maybe um, six or seven years ago, the gendered landscape of travel writing. And specifically, I was at this literary conference in Bali. And, you know, Bali is Asian. And the students that were coming to this conference were largely university students who were Indonesian, but the panel on travel writing, interestingly enough, only had Caucasians. So I was kind of horrified when I went in there and I was speaking to the convener afterwards. And I said, could we not find a single Asian person? And she kind of shrugged and said, well, I couldn't find anyone except this group that had a book. So I I channeled my inner Toni Morrison, (laughs) and I wrote the book I wanted to read, and I hope it is a book that you all will want to read as well.
0: That gendered landscape is something that we're going to return to quite shortly, but as Shaimala said in her introduction of your work, you know, you you've written in a few different forms—fiction, nonfiction. Um, how is the process of travel writing different from other nonfiction writing that you've done? How would you describe your specific approach to the genre?
2: Yes, I think travel writing, in a way, comes very easily to me because I love to travel, and you know. I mean, as, as travelers yourself, I'm sure you know that sometimes you just go to a new place and the sensual details just hit you because it's so different. Like whether you're sort of getting off in, um, let's say, New Delhi and, you know, the traffic is so loud and it's so hot and, you know, even the air feels kind of a little damp. So um, all of this stuff, you know, uh, makes me sort of want to write about it. So, for instance, when I was in Albania recently, and Albania is very much under the radar in terms of being a destination in Europe, but it's just so fabulous, and I just wanted to write. But I think more than anything else, what happened for this book is uh, Diana Koo, who is the editor at Edge, she asked me to write a column uh, before COVID, and so I started, and it was titled Writer's Postcards. So it was very much like little 800 to 1,000-word essays about traveling and writing, And I loved doing it. And, you know, I would pick up on, I don't know, the diasporic Malaysians in Chicago and how they talk about food or whatever. So in a way, when I started to think about this collection of essays with Penguin, I already had a lot of these edge essays. And some of the others are taken from like in-flight magazines like Hemispheres, where I wrote about, you know, going home in COVID because of family issues. And then others are taken from Orion, where I was in Redang, and I found this delightful group of, you know, young primary school students who were just replanting mangroves. Mm. And this was completely surrender pity. You know, I didn't look for them. I didn't know they were going to be there. So, I think travel writing uh, to go back to your question, um, in a way you know opens up your um, eyes in ways that you often don 't plan for, and it 's complete serendipity, but it is just marvelous it feeds my soul.
1: I wanted to interject at this point, just to contextualize a little bit for our listeners. This question of where are you from Deepika because the, the book kind of covers this in, in many ways but I think if you could give us a, a sort of capsule of your journeys
2: Right, my father uh, well, I mean my parents are both uh, Indian and so you know I still have Indian citizenship but I have uh, permanent residence in Malaysia so I carry around my little card and my so my husband is Malaysian and I have one son who was born in America the other one who is who was born in Malaysia and although he's 30 years old now he's not changing that for an American passport so I think we are as a family very very rooted in Malaysia and uh, we you know I come back about twice or three times a year because of work and things right now I'm here to teach at Nottingham University for a while as well So thank you for asking that. It's a question I love to answer. (laughs) And it's very relevant, I think, to to the book and where it's set. Oh, and also, sorry, yeah. And I also have a permanent residence in the US. So actually home is Chicago now for 12 years.
0: Yes, so... Your writing, um, and now that we have that context, I think it's easier to understand why. Your, Your writing intersperses personal narratives with global or political events and then situates these within the different places you travel to, but also the different places you've lived. What's your process of balancing these out to capture a sense of place and travel while also rooting it in your own life and experiences?
2: I think for me, it's more meaningful. And perhaps it's also the way that I find women writers, um, you know, sort of look at travel writing. You you really can't detach yourself from where you are. So my personal experience, let's say of China, you know, um, and if you read that essay, it started off as something that was, um, you know, very, very reluctant to move and expatriation. I was a trailing spy. I didn't want to be a trailing spouse. But as you know, my life evolved in China it just became magical. And, you know, all these stereotypes that you hear about the Chinese people, their government, all of that kind of dissolved as I worked with Chinese um, students in universities and taught sociolinguistics. So in a way, I couldn't really write about China or even Tibet without divorcing it from my personal experience there and just kind of tag it to a bunch of... Stereotypes. I mean, that would make no sense. And I think the older ways of travel writing very much, uh, I think the colonial way of writing was very much helicopterish, where you look at something from above, you, you look at the forest and you really miss the trees. And I think um, the new way to do it, especially the way that writers I admire are doing it, they're going in there and not just going in for like one week for a holiday and then coming back with these, you know, really banal things that they say about the food or the people, but actually living there for a while and getting to know the people and trying to understand the culture, which, of course, as we know, is impossible in a short time, um, no matter how, you know, how much you try. So, yeah.
1: I found it really interesting that you started the collection with, a, with an anecdote about the importance of solo travel, uh, particularly as a woman, right? Um, and this is, of course, a movement that has picked up a lot, but really in the last decade or so, women encouraging other women to travel solo. But there are still many for whom this is actually quite a daunting thing to do. Uh, talk to us about that, the value of traveling solo, um, but also how you overcome the anxieties or challenges.
2: Right. That's a great question. And in fact, when I was in Kolkata for a you know, poetry festival recently, um, one of my uh, very dear friends asked me, do you know of any other married woman who travels solo regularly? And I thought, and I thought, and I really could not think of a single one, because as a married woman, very often you feel obliged to travel with your spouse or or your children. And, you know, taking that time for yourself, you know, just feels selfish. But as I explain in my foreword, I was kind of pushed into solo travel because of a fight with my mother. And I just kind of got into it. And now I do it regularly. And I think, um, Sharmila, to answer your question, um, some of the things I think that has helped is traveling in India, for instance, it helps as you get Older, You know, it's not that I don't know young women who travel alone, but there are parts of, let's say, North India that are more dangerous for for women than, let's say, Singapore, you know, and we all we have to like accept that fact that it is a truism about women traveling alone. But at the same time, I think, you know, even... If you live in a place like Chicago, there's so much gun violence all the time. What does that mean? Do we not live there? We just find our ways to, you know, work around that. I think young women now, whether it's like women's groups who travel alone or women who travel absolutely on their own. They have devised a way of doing this so that they pre-plan things, which really helps so that you're not stuck in some, you know, hillside in the middle of the night with no way to get anywhere. Um, and they have like all these plans for uh, people that they can contact and, you know, and I think it's it's perfectly safe nowadays to travel a lot of the world just because There are hotels that have opened up floors that are for women only or, you know, um, they have... Things in place that allow women to travel with a large degree of comfort. So I would strongly agree with uh, I w- with the fact that it is becoming uh, very much a trend, and it should be, you know, widely encouraged because it's been such a male bastion. I mean, even the word flaneur, you know, you it's usually mm-hmm. a man who's just like loafing about and doing nothing, but, <laughs> strolling. It's strolling. But women should have that same kind of permission so to speak and they should give themselves permission it's not permission that they need from society to just you know pas what they want. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's one thing um, how has the fact that you are both a writer but also a social linguist and academic shaped the way that you travel and the lens that you bring to the spaces you travel to?
2: Right. I think a lot of my travel is sometimes initiated by things like uh, a conference, you know, and like, for instance, this uh, trip here was started by this Nottingham University mentorship. So my writing um, is often symbiotic with my academic work. Um, And that's good because, you know, writing, I hate to say this to all our listeners who are listening with bated breath, it doesn't pay you to travel (laughs) the world (laughs) academic um, uh, you know things often do and especially if you have a you know academic position and you can get some sort of grants and things that will often allow you to do your own thing writing I really think that there's a very very small percentage of people who earn enough from writing so that they can give up everything else and just do writing full-time and travel as they want so Um, Yeah, so I think that uh, to answer you, I hope I've answered your question. Basically, they sort of feed into each other. And I try to make my academic work pay for my travel writing. Yeah,
1: very practical and smart, I think. We're talking to Deepika Mukherjee, whose latest collection of writing, Writers' Postcards, has just come out. We will pick up the conversation uh, again after this. Uh, But let us know, are you a fan of travel writing? Have you read Deepika's work? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Beautiful festive moments. BFM. 89.9 The Business Station Welcome back, you're listening to Buy the Book with Sharmila and Lynn and we're speaking to writer Deepika Mukherjee about her latest uh, book Writer's Postcards, which is a collection of travel essays spanning several several decades in fact I'd say about all the different places that she's travelled to, lived in Deepika, to pick up where we left off um, you write extensively in the book about actually being a writer, specifically a writer who exists between cultures. What were you trying to capture
2: with this? Oh, that's an excellent question. I think what I was trying to do with this really is what I sometimes feel is very unfair is that when you live in the West, as well, in the US as I do, um, there are a number of MFA programs. There are a lot of these little institutions like Story Studio, where I'm core faculty, um, which just have these public courses for people. But in Asia, that is really still very much um, a growing movement. So in Malaysia, we're lucky to have the Nottingham University campus that does offer a creative writing uh, course if, from the undergrad to the PhD levels. But if you are not... A student and you just want to take some courses on writing, it can be a bit challenging. I mean, of course, people like Sharon Bakar offer courses, and there are a few other people in the landscape here, but it is not as easy uh, to do this. And sometimes I think what happens is that uh, whenever I am in Asia teaching creative writing, and I did that at uh, IIT Delhi, uh, um, as well as, you know, I'm doing it now here, I feel that the students are just hungering for some kind of tips on, you know, how to publish, how do you get into the literary right life. So when I wrote that essay that is in there about, you know, uh, the advantages of being um, an Asian writer, I really meant to sort of highlight that. But because very often, in these parts, you start off from a position of disability, like you feel that you don't have the ability to write because it's your second language, or you don't have the ability to publish because you live somewhere else that is not UK or the US. But Now, with kind of the Internet being all over and excellent um, online magazines, uh, well, and publications like Mekong Review, you know, which are really on par with some of the best in the world. There are so many areas where you can send your Asian stories. And we have so many stories that are still untold. One of my favorite things to teach in this part of the world is a course on myth and magic. Mm. because we have so many stories and nobody knows them.
0: I said earlier that we would return to this point because you we spoke earlier about the issue of gender um, mm-hmm. as a solo female traveller. But in the book, it really goes beyond that because there are also many observations about the role of gender within different cultures and communities and how these might be evolving. It is, in fact, something that you, uh, again, draw comparisons to between what you observe as a traveller, but also what you've observed as a... Human, as a woman, um, you know, as or a, a family member. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, and these are themes that you also frequently visit in your fiction. It, talk to us about why this was something that was important for you to have and include.
2: Right. Um, I think uh, it's very important to me as a woman um, who is Indian and Asian and one who has a voice to talk about these things that perhaps. Uh, people, you know, do not speak off as easily, either because they're powerless, or they just don't have the language, you know, to express it in exactly these terms. I'm not, you know, like putting myself putting on a cape <laughs> out here and saying, Oh, here's superwoman, you know, solving your problems, not at all. But I think that um, we really have to check our own privilege in just even being able to do this, because there are so many women in our own communities. And I address this um, is a little bit uh, on my essay on Chodhi, my mm-hmm. my own cousin, Um, and how my own family, despite being as progressive as they were in my own life, and I was allowed to basically study anything I wanted. um, And finally, I married the man I loved, even though there was some opposition at the beginning. But it wasn't true of somebody else who was like a first cousin. So I wanted to address these things and say that, hey, yeah, you know, we are always saying that women are sending, uh, you know, these rockets to Mars now from India. Women are... Evolved, but that is so not true. It really depends on where you are in the socioeconomic spectrum and in your, you know, sort of point in your life. And it's important for us to realize that no matter what the facade is like, and how much we seem to have evolved, there are still like very deep dysfunctional areas in our own communities, which we should address so that our nieces and our daughters have better lives. So I actually found
1: um, the way you you use those sorts of personal stories to illustrate these points very, uh, quite poignant. and, And I think, you know, rightly so, because they're very personal aspects of your own life. And I wanted to ask you about that because um, the the, the Chority story was one uh, that was, uh, I could see the the strains, as you mentioned, in Shambhala Junction as well. But you also talk about the passing of your father, for instance. You talk about your brother who is incapacitated right now. Was it difficult to sort of lay bare these aspects of your life?
2: Oh, yes, absolutely. I think in a way, writing memoir. Kind of essays is the most difficult of all, because even in a poem you can say oh that 's just just the persona i 'm writing in the voice of a woman who has been you know molested or something you know it's not it 's not you out there, whereas um in an essay. You can't do that because it literally is you who is talking. So I think it was very scary. I think that there are essays about my mother that I still don't feel comfortable writing because, uh, you know, I've always had a very fraught relationship with my mother, as I point out in the (laughs) foreword right off the bat. So even in the stories that I do include about family, uh, some of you may notice that my mother is barely mentioned. But, you know, it is also something that I think that I'm coming to terms with that while she is alive, I do not want to write these stories. I There are, there are lines I will not cross, yes? So I think that it is a very, very fraught endeavour to write about your own family. And I think my brother, um, the one who is kind of taking care of everyone in Delhi right now, uh, including the incapacitated brother, I think he had some issues when I started to write this in terms of, you know, what I was doing. But he is kind of my biggest fan. So when I published um, that essay in Los Angeles, review of books about, you know, my brother's incapacitation, he was like the first one to just, you know, spread it all over the world. (laughs) So he is, yeah, I think he's, he's gotten over it. But I think that there is always, I mean, as memoir writers know this so well, there is a very thin line between what you perceive as the truth and what other people who are still alive perceive as the truth. So you just have to walk that very, very finely.
0: And if we... Go Because as your book does, you know, uh, transition from memoir to travel writing, if we look at the traveling, um, this was something you mentioned earlier that actually some of the time your ability to travel is either because of your work or sometimes very directly as a result of, of a conference or a festival. And therefore there is and you acknowledge there's a specific kind of access or privilege sometimes that you get as an expat or as a travelling writer, Uh, was it important to you to move outside of that comfort zone? Because you also talk about eventually learning to be open to what a place can offer rather than having set expectations. And truthfully, I think these are challenges for a lot of people, whether it's about travelling with privilege or travelling with, I must see everything, I I must see the big ones.
2: Yes, I think my husband and I still have this, you know, sort of um, argument every time we go to some other place <laughs> because he's like, let's go see everything, and I'm like, no, and certainly not hiking up. <laughs> and you
1: said you prefer to sit and sip a cup of coffee. I,
2: I do. <laughs> so you know, I have to say this in great embarrassment and total shame. Um, when we went to Bhutan, which is a gorgeous part of our world, there is this monastery up on a hill. You know that uh, apparently the first monk you know, flew to it on the on the back of a woman tiger. Yeah. So there's all this myth and stuff associated with it. And it's this gorgeous monastery. But to get up to it, it takes like, I don't know, about like two hours of hiking up steep paths that only like the monks can do so my husband was all gung-ho when he went up there and I sat down and I just was sitting in the sun and these two young girls came and sat next to me so I have a poem about it in one of my books not in dialect of distant harbors and they started to like just play this game with their fingers And it was just magical, you know. We didn't speak the same language, but it was basically black or white that we were playing with our palms, you know, this way or that. And there was this connection, and I would not have got this if I had hiked, you know? So I have absolutely no regrets about not killing myself, but I know that this is going to make some um, listeners quite upset. that I went to Bhutan, and I didn't, you know, hike up that place, but, um, yep, that's me. So I think, uh, yeah, so to go back to the question, I think I just have to sort of find these ways in which to find my own joy, you know? You know, even if I'm with someone else or, you know, just make that time mine.
1: One thing I found quite distinctive about the collection is that uh, you often include poems or excerpts from other writers in your essays, right? Whether it's Mary Oliver or Redmond Rashid. Um, Did these naturally come to you as you were writing because it fit a certain story that you were telling? Or did you consciously look for pieces that would fit?
2: Um, no, I think it was a very organic, you know, fitting into it. Um, Mary Oliver came to me when this happened to my brother. And, you know, I was just like, why? You know, why? And and this, her little poem that is about even darkness being a gift, you know, just just seemed to fit because I started to slowly see that there were silver linings. In, in something that was so tragic. Um, Rahman Rashid was a very dear friend. Years ago, when I was about 18 and I had just finished my A-levels here, I had to take a forced gap year because university was starting a year later for me. And um, I started to uh, write with Malay Mail, Hotline, to be precise. (laughs) And Raymond was like the star at that time, right? I mean, he was bigger than life. And I think he just kind of took me under his wing because he used to tease me all the time. So we did keep in touch and Rehman's work, I absolutely, I adore. I think he's one of the best Malaysian writers we have had. And even the things that he's written about travel, you know, and Peninsula and things like that, um, it's still so evocative now. I think he really is so relevant despite his, you know, passing, unfortunately, a couple of years ago, which I was incredibly sad about, yeah.
0: Your book um, acknowledges the roots that you've put down in different countries outside of India, um, and that includes China, Malaysia, the Netherlands. Are there specific places that hold a special place for you? And uh, where else would you like to go?
2: (laughs) Yeah, I get asked that often. But, you know, as I think I say somewhere in this book, the thing about um, travel is that uh, you sort of, you're always pining for something, that is not there there is really no place on earth that is absolutely perfect so what i can say about that i think ultimately you know my husband and i we both want to come back and sort of live in malaysia because malaysia is a place if it makes any sense at all where i can see myself dying yes mm-hmm. i cannot see myself really dying anywhere else but here i think this is a good place to kind of end your life in you know with all all that we do have here in terms of family and comforts and things. Um, So I would say that Malaysia is very high on the list, but I, I, you know, it's hard to choose. I absolutely love Amsterdam. I'm going there for like a book launch and uh, a talk and things. Um, I haven't been able to go back to Shanghai just because, you know, I haven't even really tried, you know, visas can be a little bit of a pain. Um, But yeah, I think... um, Chicago is just amazing. I mean, Chicago, we've managed to live there for 12 years. We've never lived anywhere else for more than four years at a time. I think Singapore was the longest for four and a half. But Chicago is just amazing. Sharmila, you know, you visited recently. Yes, (laughs) yes.
1: It is actually really a fun city that I didn't expect to like as much as I ended up liking. Deepika, uh, we will continue the conversation after this with some recommendations. But we're speaking with Deepika Mukherjee, whose latest collection of uh, travel essays, personal memoir, um, is called Writer's Postcards. Let us know, do you enjoy travel writing? Are you a fan of Deepika's writing? You can WhatsApp us, 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. And that brings us to footnotes. We are closing off our conversation with Deepika Mukherjee um, by getting you to recommend your personal favorites or really must reads uh, when it comes to writing about uh, travel or books about travel?
2: Yes, I think I, I always like to, you know, start with somebody local because, you know, people, Malaysians, you need to be reading more local writers, <laughs> honestly. So I think that in terms of uh, a story that caught my attention, um in being a travelogue as well as a foodie log, was uh, Beth Yap, and she wrote this book in 2015. It's called uh, Eat First, Talk Later. <laughs> and it's also a kind of a memoir where she's kind of on this journey with her parents. And I I enjoyed that. Um, In terms of other people that I think uh, I would like people to read, uh, there is this really marvelous essay. It's not a book. It's an essay. And it is uh, titled The Crane Wife. And it's available in Paris Review. So you can just Google it and it will come up. And it's an essay by C.J. Hauser. And I think it's one of the finest examples of how can how you can write a travel story, but make it intensely personal, and and just I don't know resonant in so many ways. It's a gorgeous piece. Other than that, um, I think that uh, you know travel writing and stories. Just read more women, you know. I think that there are just so many lovely women, you know, writing out there and you can Google people you like. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't want to throw out a lot of male writers because if you Google the best travel writing, you will find the Paul Thoreau's and the Bill Bryson's (laughs) of this world. But, you know, look for for stories by women.
1: I think that's a lovely note to end on. Deepika, thank you for coming in and speaking to us. Thank you both. We've been talking about the pickers' latest book, Writers' Postcards, which is currently out in bookstores and online. Do weigh in. Who are some of your favourite travel writers or books about travelling? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio, write to us at buythebook at bfm.my.